Welcome back to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, Industry Updates for the Modern Dairy Family. I'm Darby Toth, a Technical Field Services Representative with Western United Dairies. This week we have a market update with our economist, Tiffany LaMondola. We'll be playing pieces of a webinar from Anthony Ramundo that includes a labor update. This mainly focuses on wage and hour and payroll compliance, along with some other reminders. Capping that off, I'll be doing a brief segment about dairy leaders and the deadline extension. Now let's jump right into this week's episode of Seen and Heard. With our state facing a record drought, California's dairy families are meeting the challenge of getting the most out of every drop of water. According to UC researchers, California's dairy families will use 25% less water this year than last year. Over the past two decades, 50% less. How'd we do it? Resilience, innovation, technology. In fact, when it comes to water conservation, California dairy families lead the world. We're using recycled water, ensuring sustainability. We're irrigating our farmland more efficiently, doing more with less. And nearly half of what we feed our animals comes from nutritious, natural crop byproducts, which require no additional water at all. Dairy families and the California Cattle Council are doing our part. We'll continue to feed California sustainably and using our water efficiently. Welcome everybody. We are at the, the top of the hour and let's, let's dive in. The goal here is to run through kind of the top five things as we see as the hot topic items in the markets and get you out of here within 15 minutes and back to your busy day. Just real quickly, where are we now in terms of milk futures? Of course, um, kind of this is the goal is to get you thinking forward a bit. Um, you know, spot markets have stabilized somewhat here lately. Um, in terms of milk futures, we are definitely off the May highs that we saw um, saying kind of a slow grind lower, both in class three and class four uh, futures prices for fourth quarter. Um, but as I mentioned here lately, we've, we've hit kind of a plateau. We seem to be a bit range bound in most all commodities. Um, I don't know if it's just the dog days of summer or market sort of lacking conviction. We'll talk through some of that. Um, we've seen a slight rebound in class three um, off the bottom that we formed kind of late July um, and, and a little bit in class four. Out in four First quarter, again, off the highs of May, but definitely kind of steady here. And um, we'll show you in a bit, pretty good relative to historic levels. So what are we watching? Um, I, we narrowed it down to uh, a few things. One, I think milk production and milk products are not running out anytime soon, but we're seeing a little bit of shift and trend um, that we'll talk through. We definitely have our eyes on margins at the farm uh, we know those are getting tighter um, and all eyes are on harvest to see um, how this plays out uh, in the months ahead. Um, we know demand has been pretty good overall for dairy products and um, that supply chain logistics still persists. So a lot of problems out there and a uh, big question mark around China. Uh, what will their demand look like uh, moving forward? The latest milk production report we have is for July. And another pretty strong showing for US output was up 2%. That came in pretty close to most expectations for the month. Um, we saw a few regions get hit by heat, particularly up in the Pacific Northwest. 
and a little bit in California. But all the other major milk producing regions had pretty solid gains, as you can see. We did notice a slight um, pace that the pace of per cow productivity productivity dropped just ever so slightly. It slowed to plus 0.7% nationally. That had been compared to a pretty uh, pretty solid pace of plus 1.2% in the previous six months. Um, we um, are guessing that hot weather uh, knocked, that, knocked that back in a few regions as noted. Probably most importantly, um, we are watching closely cow numbers. Um, we did see the second month finally of uh, the herd moving a little bit lower. We were down 6,000 head in June and another 3,000 head in July, according to USDA. Um, but we are still 128,000 head above this time last year. So definitely moving in the right direction, but a long ways to go um, in terms of trimming that herd size. One thing we have definitely noticed is that slaughter activity is up um, well above average. We're actually pretty close to the five-year max. And um, this can show you by region. We are also hearing a little bit more talk about liquidation and certainly seeing some more auction notices. Um, but again, ways to go to get um, that 128,000 head trimmed back. Uh, moving in the right direction though. One thing we have also noticed um, it, more in the here and now is that I think seasonal forces are certainly at play. There's a little bit less extra surplus milk out in the countryside. Um, you can see we spent much of the early summer at pretty depressed spot milk prices in the Midwest running well below class levels. We just had a lot of milk available out in the countryside. That has tightened up some. I think both seasonally as, as heat in different areas have kicked back um, production off farm, as well as some additional pool from class one uh, bottlers as schools are back in session. And um, so both good news in terms of kind of cleaning up the market a bit. We've seen that play out, we think, in the spot uh, cheddar market in Chicago. Um, with the lowest uh, volume so far um, this month since, since April. Um, I will note we saw a few offers show up today, so we'll have to see if that um, changes the trend. Milk production is kind of coming down seasonally. Um, that's good news. I think, though, that we need to be well aware of really solid buffers still in play. We have, we have a lot of dairy products in inventories that have been put away under the last several months of really um, strong output. We did see July cheese stocks grow at above average pace. Um, there is new plant capacity out there where we are producing more, um, so not a total surprise. Um, on the good news front, we did see butter uh, pull, pull down uh, inventories in July a little bit stronger than normal, um, but we still have a lot there, up 7% year over year. And I'm not showing you a visual of nonfat, um, but those stocks too are, are pretty high, up 25%. Um, there's a lot of questions remain around, I think particularly in powder, on if some of those stocks have already been sold. Um, and we'll talk about it, but a lot of supply chain logistics, a lot of problems just getting product moved out of the US um, that could be contributing to these higher um, inventory levels. 
Our number two watch factor, um, as I mentioned, are margins at, at the dairies. Uh, no doubt all eyes are on harvest. Uh, we really need a strong corn crop. Some areas are looking good, others not so good. Um, but in the here and now, we are seeing corn prices up about 66% above year ago levels. And as we use the dairy margin coverage uh, margin model as sort of as a proxy, of course, this does not fit every size farm everywhere. Um, but I think the bottom line is that we have definitely seen a feed cost escalation um, that's up about 27% compared to this time last year. And so how the corn and soybean crops turn out are gonna be very paramount, very important um, obviously, as we head into the remainder of the year and into next year. Um, so keeping a close eye on that. For now, corn is idling, uh, December corn is idling right around that 550 a bushel level. Um, with tighter, I'm sorry, with, with higher uh, feed costs, those margin predictions, um, again, through DMC, are also down about 28%, um, mostly on the higher feed costs, though a little bit lower milk prices as well. Number three, um, thankfully, demand has been pretty darn solid uh, for, for our commodities. Um, that has helped to soak up some of the extra milk and inventory uh, product that we have out there. Um, definitely at retail, both butter and cheese have been holding in there pretty strong. Even if we um, compare to 2019 levels, which is a little bit more realistic given all of the disruptions at retail last year, um, you can see that uh, in the gray bars compares to 2019 levels, um, butter demand has been good. Cheese has been even stronger. And certainly one thing we are watching is a rebound um, that we've seen at the food service level. Um, certainly as things were getting a little bit better over the summer, we saw people heading back out to eat um, and maybe retail coming down ever so slightly. What we are now wondering with a little additional flare-ups across the country is if we see sort of a pivot back to eating a little bit more at home and away from food service. The numbers aren't quite playing that out yet, but certainly, certainly something we are watching. Um, I would say the one segment of our industry that continues to still struggle, however, is fluid milk. We did enjoy a really nice kind of pop last spring um, at that sort of those, those initial hoarding type levels. Um, that that uh, fun has, has gone away and uh, we are back to uh, lower year over year levels on fluid milk sales. Um, but everything else looking pretty darn solid. Logistics nightmares continue. I'm sure you've all uh, read articles um, from moving product across land. Truck, trucking rates are very high, hard to even find trucks in some instances. Um, lots of empty containers leaving US ports because they're demanding such high prices to get back to China um, that in case, some cases we're not even filling them with product. We have heard ongoing stories of um, port closures, as well as congestion, um, some major ports in China, as well as um, ports here in California, just way backed up. And we continue to hear from folks that it is hurting to some degree our participation in dairy export markets, um, just making the, the ability to move the product that much harder and that much more costly uh, for folks as we're trying to be competitive. 
Uh, that said, we, you know, we have seen really good export numbers this year. It's just really hard to know when those sales were, were booked and how that might look like moving forward. Um, I would say one of our biggest question marks um, is what China will do um, in the months ahead. They have been buying powder at a very aggressive clip so far. Um, their import figures through June um, were very strong, as you can see, for both skim milk powder and whole milk powder. Um, but data out of that region, um, as much as we can rely on it, is showing that potentially there was some um, aggressive buying to build inventories. Um, you can see the chart here shows what we believe to be their ending stocks of skim milk powder. Um, so we think they're sitting on, on some good reserves and we've seen some signs of their um, appetites waning just a bit, particularly on the last couple of global dairy trade auctions where they um, are, are, are strong participants. They have been pulling uh, less volume for the last three auctions. Um, so something that we're watching very closely because I think without China's aggressive buying, the non-fat dry milk market might have a um, hard time finding upward impetus um, and, and could struggle in a climate without China buying aggressively from some of our um, competitors, particularly um, New Zealand. Kind of summing that all up. Um, so what did we just say? I, I would say what, what we're looking at is that, you know, I think we all thought by August of 2021, there would be a lot less uncertainty in our markets. And here we find ourselves still with quite a bit. Um, you know, can we think of a bullish story for sure? Um, demand remains strong. If China keeps buying, that will certainly help. Um, grain prices elevated, um, though we don't like that for our dairy producers. Typically, um, margin squeeze would um, result in reduced milk uh, flows down the road. And obviously, inflationary concerns just across all commodities. On the flip side, um, we do have really strong milk production, and we're not quite sure when the brakes get put on. Um, at this point, it's probably well into 2022 before we see any major contraction, particularly since we have so much cow power out there. We do have ample stocks we're sitting on that we need to work through. And our questions still remain around um, international buyers. You know, were they just buying aggressively early on in the year, or do we continue to see that pace? Um, right now, we're feeling like the pace is slowing down just a bit. And obviously, um, pandemic impacts um, that we all have lived through the last year and, and looks like going to stay in the mix here in the months ahead. So that being said, as we look into 2022, we urge you to take a look um, at coverage if you haven't already, at least through the uh, DRP program. Uh, the floors out there are really pretty darn good relative to history. We have both class three and class four trigger prices sitting about a dollar above the five-year average um, for the first quarter. Um, and you can see how that plays out against each of the years here. That is our quick uh, summary for, for the day. I encourage you to reach out to us if you'd like to talk about any of this in more detail. Um, need anything or have any further questions. And thanks a lot for taking the time to be with us today. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. 
To learn more, visit pge.com slash safety. Perfect. I, I, will, I will jump right into it. Good morning, everybody. Um, so I just want to jump into a few things that are some general updates for us in terms of what's happening in the industry and where we are um, in terms of labor deployment compliance and the risks that are associated with, uh, with labor um, out there in the world. The, the number one risk continues to be what it has been for many years. Uh, the biggest problem that we have is the continued growth and proliferation of uh, wage and hour collective action lawsuits, which means uh, class action lawsuits, which is where one employee stands as the representative for all of the employees, typically over a four-year period. And those will usually include minimum wage claims, overtime claims, meal and respite break claims, uh, record-keeping claims. Uh, very common are claims that the check stubs are either not formatted correctly or do not contain the information that is required by law to appear um, on those check stubs. And they are a problem for all industries, but they have been a particular problem in the dairy industry for a variety of different reasons, um, some of which include some of the pay practice we have in the dairy industry. We have a lot of folks who are non-exempt employees like milkers who uh, are entitled to overtime but are paid a salary rather than hourly, uh, which violates California law in terms of overtime um, or daily rates, which is just treated as a salary. They changed the labor code a few years ago so that um, a, a salary can only cover the employee's regular hours. So if you're paying your employees a salary, none of it will be credited towards overtime. It will only be credited towards their regular hours. And the, the um, hourly rate for overtime purposes for a salaried employee is going to be that salary divided by the number of regular hours that they're allowed to work the weekly salary divided by the regular hours they're allowed to work at maximum in the work week. So what ends up happening is we see a lot of dairymen who pay a higher salary thinking, oh, well, I'm going to give them something extra to cover their overtime. And all they're doing is driving up that hourly rate uh, and causing uh, more exposure to liability at a larger number on, on the other end. Um, meal and rest breaks uh, also tends to be a, an issue largely because of the uncontrolled nature of work on dairies. Um, particularly in the milk barns, we see employees who are kind of left to their own devices as to when to take their meal breaks, um, which causes meal breaks to either not be taken at all because they want to finish up and go home, or meal breaks that are taken that are too short because they essentially eat on the fly, um, or meal breaks that um, happen too late in the day. The meal break has to happen no more than five hours after when they started work. So if they started work at five o'clock in the morning, that meal break has to start no later than 10 o'clock a.m. They started at seven o'clock. It needs to start no later than noon. It needs to be a full 30 minutes and they need to be released from all duty um, during that meal break. To a lesser extent, we do see with some of the 3X dairies, employees who really don't have enough time um, to stay on schedule and still get those uh, those meal breaks and rest breaks that they're required to get, um, as well as uh, occasionally we do see dairies that have carousels where employees either can't or feel that they can't um, walk away from the carousel in order to take the meal break and take the rest break. And if they're not given the opportunity to take it or the work prevents them from taking it, that's considered a violation on the uh, on the part of 
the employer, which in a, on a related note, we see a lot of meal break problems in chopping because it is, a, it, for those of you who may have chopping companies, we have this continuous process in, in chopping where they really don't get the ability to get off the vehicles or get off the equipment um, and walk away for 30 minutes if they want to uh, in order to take that meal period. Um, Yes, I just saw Anya's comment. Yes, we I'll, I'll be taking quite a few questions today. We'll make sure that we get everybody's questions answered once I once I go through all of this. So on a basic eight to 10 hour workday, an employee should be getting two uh, rest breaks that are on the clock and paid that are at least 10 minutes in duration. Um, and after no more than five hours of work, they should be getting that 30 minute off duty meal period that they clock out for. And then they get they're entitled to take a second meal period after 10 hours of work, although they can skip the second one if they took the first one and um, they work no more than 12 hours in the day. So that's kind of the basic rule for your meal periods. For your rest breaks, the, it's kind of a complicated rule that confuses people. The way that it's written is that employees are entitled to that 10 minute rest period for every four hours they work or major fraction of four hours. That doesn't mean that every four hours they get 10 minutes. What it means is, for example, if you take an eight hour day, you divide that by four hours, you get two four hour blocks in that day, they get a 10 minute rest period for each of those four hour blocks. If we were to take a 10 hour day, you do the same thing. You divide it by four hours, you get two four hour blocks with two hours left over. Two hours is not a major fraction of four because it falls exactly at the, at the halfway point. So you kind of throw out that extra two hours and they get two rest breaks. The minute they go over 10 hours, you have more than two hours left over when you divide by four. Anything more than two hours is a major fraction of four hours. And that triggers the obligation to provide them with um, another 10 minute rest break, which is why for shorthand purposes, I usually say that for an eight to 10 hour day, they get two rest periods and the one meal break. Once they go over 10 hours, they're going to get up to 12 hours. They're going to get a third. Uh, they're going to get a third rest break and a second meal period. Um, we don't see too many workdays over 12 hours in the dairy industry. But if you have longer workdays, I'm happy to, to talk about that a little bit. Um, some of our dairies that work split shifts, the problem they have is the employees will get a big chunk of time off in the middle of the day. But that split shift occurs more than five hours after they started work, which means it fails as, as a meal period. Um, these cases are typically brought as collective actions because by adding everybody up who worked there, they can kind of maximize what the exposure is. And we typically see in these cases six and sometimes seven figure exposures. Um, and we usually see five and six figure settlements of these cases because they're very, very expensive to defend. There usually are some types of violations. It's, it's very difficult to avoid violations. Our labor code has become so technical um, that it's really become a form of legalized extortion for lawyers. So a lot of what we work on with our clients is not only the compliance aspect of it, but what you can do to make your company less attractive to these lawyers and give yourself more leverage if they do sue you. So we recommend that everybody have employees sign mandatory arbitration agreements as a condition of employment, which um, the association West United can help you with this. We have given those to West United in both English and Spanish. 
What those agreements do is it keeps your case out of court and puts it in front of an arbitrator, which automatically gives it less value because there's no jury, there's no judge, it's just a private arbitrator uh, who's going to make the decision. And then we can have them waive their right to bring that class action so they have to proceed as an individual. Now, the only exception to that is California has a law called the Private Attorney General Act. The Private Attorney General Act is a law that was uh, passed, I believe, originally in 2004, but it kind of took a while for it to heat up. And again, it's a leverage tool. It's where one employee steps into the shoes of the state of California, and they can sue you for uh, essentially fines for labor code violations that normally there would be a penalty or a fine that's collected by the state of California through the labor commissioner's office. So the way I typically describe Private Attorney General Act to clients when they have these cases is it's as though you and I were in a car accident. Say I run a stop sign and I hit you uh, and I damage your car and you're injured in the accident. You can sue me for the damages to your car. You can sue me for the injuries, but you can't sue me for the fine, the ticket for me running the stop sign. That's a violation of the vehicle code, but the government has to give me a ticket and fine me and I pay the government. With, with something like the Private Attorney General Act, when they jump through certain procedural hoops, they can sue you for the ticket. Now, they have to give 75% of that back to the state of California, but what they get is their attorney's fees, which is what these cases are always about, which is about attorneys trying to cash in. Whether it's a class action or a Private Attorney General Act case, these cases always end the same way when they settle. It's usually a big settlement that hurts the employer. The employees get a tiny amount of money. And the lawyers get a big chunk of money because the lawyers take somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the overall number. So they don't care if it's an overall number that splits amongst a large number of people and the workers get peanuts. Their fee comes off the overall number and they usually clean up quite well in these things. So it's, it's become a, a very big incentive point uh, for the type of lawyers that uh, I'm adverse to. Um, uh, to shake down businesses, there's no insurance to cover it. And they use it as a shakedown tactic because they know it costs a lot to defend these cases. Um, they know that chances are there's some little piece of liability where uh, the employer will be at risk of losing some amount of money plus all of their attorney's fees. Um, and that becomes a, a, a very big challenge for us in defending these cases. So having the arbitration agreements is important. Having the Having a good employee handbook is important because the way these things are always evaluated is these lawyers will send you a letter saying, we want to, we represent one of your employees. We want to see time records. We want to see payroll records. We want to see any documents that they've signed for. And the labor code entitles them to get most of that stuff. So they're going to see your handbook and they're going to see your records. And they're looking for weaknesses in that. Usually, honestly, the first thing they're going to see is a check stub, which is why the check stub is so sensitive. Because if there's something wrong with the check stub, there are very significant penalties that attach to that that they know they can use as a shakedown tactic. So having your check stubs be perfect is really, really, really important. So the sort of the pieces of the puzzle as far as risk management goes is number one, having compliant payroll and employment practices, meaning people are taking their meal periods, they're taking their rest breaks, they're getting them on time. Having a good employee handbook that notifies them of all these rights, and it spells out what your policies and practices are. For example, if you have a carousel, oftentimes what I see when I talk to a dairy that has a carousel is they'll have a relief procedure. So the milker or milkers who's working, who are working on the carousel can actually take breaks and take a lunch. 
putting that relief procedure in writing and then building that into an employee handbook helps you prove that that's actually your practice and that's actually your procedure. And having that on paper helps you a lot. And having employees who sign for it helps you a lot. So the arbitration agreements, the handbooks, if you want your employees to make a consistent wage like a salary, what we've been used to in the dairy industry, the only way that we've come up with that you can do that, that we think will withstand um, attack in the courts, um, is something we've come up with that we call a, an hourly guarantee agreement. What an hourly guarantee agreement is, and this is going to sound silly to you guys, it's going to sound like it's just semantics, but the reality is it makes a difference in how you do things and how you present things. With an hourly guarantee agreement, what you're doing is you're guaranteeing the employee a certain number of hours, and that can be every week, every pay period. I mean, it, we, can, it, we can do it in different ways, but essentially they sign an agreement in English and Spanish that says that they understand that the hourly wage for their job is whatever it is, and normally we just put it at minimum wage. And that we're guaranteeing that they're going to get a certain number of regular hours and a certain number of overtime hours every pay period. And where I came up with this was because the more I talked to Dairyman about these salaries, the more that I learned that most of these salaries are determined in exactly this way. The Dairyman has a pretty good idea of how much time it takes to milk the cows, how many hours the employee is going to work. And they come up with a salary that's based on sort of that normal set of hours. And honestly, they usually throw a little bit extra in just to make sure they're never short. And uh, that's where the salaries came from, but not quantified in any way, not on paper anywhere. So what we've done is we've taken that and turned it into an hourly guarantee that says, you're going to work this number of hours. If we don't give you this many hours, we're going to pay you for the hours that we've guaranteed you because we want to make sure that you can make a living and you can earn enough to survive. And if we don't give you enough work to cover those hours, we're going to pay you for them anyway. If you work more hours than we've guaranteed you, then you're going to get paid for whatever hours that you work. And it so far has been a very, very effective tool for dairy employers who want to get away from this salary stuff, but still maintain that consistency of income that helps you to recruit and retain employees that, you know, frankly, draws a lot of employees to the dairy industry if they know they have a predictable income. So those things are, are a, a piece of the puzzle. Um, increasingly, I have become very a very big proponent of training. I think it's great to have documented training. Something like the meal and rest period stuff, I think having at least one training a year, if not more, on um, what your practices are and what your policies are on meal and rest breaks to be able to show that they've been informed and they know their rights um, is unbelievably helpful. Again, it, you may not see it, but I see it make a difference in these cases when I actually have to um, have to deal with them. Um, auditing your payroll to make sure that you're doing it correctly. Again, very, very important to check yourself and make sure you're doing things correctly. Check your pay stubs. Just because you've been doing something for a long time in a certain way and it hasn't gotten you in trouble doesn't mean it's not going to get you in trouble. You know, I'm still seeing, for example, um, with the mandatory sick leave law that came in a few years ago, the sick leave balance is supposed to be on the check stub, and I still see a lot of dairies that don't have their sick leave balances on the employee check stubs. It's very, very easy to make to make mistakes on this stuff, and we really want to make sure that you don't. Um, so those are kind of the general the general pieces to the puzzle, but I think a lot of it is just taking a more proactive approach. Um, I think what's coming next on the wage and hour front, which is of great concern to me, is over the years, I have seen the number of um, 
individual labor commissioner claims go down. Uh, when I first started working in the dairy industry, I mean, I was in either Stockton, Fresno, or Bakersfield at least a couple times a week, if not more, um, handling individual labor commissioner claims, wage claims that were brought by employees through what's called the Berman hearing process. That has declined over the years as the lawsuits have grown up. Um, but just this past year, they changed the law. So now the labor commissioner gets to award attorney's fees in those cases to attorneys. So I think especially some of the smaller attorneys or some of the, the, the cases where attorneys don't want to take on the risk or the burden of pursuing a collective action case, they're going to bring an individual case to the labor commissioner. And let's say it's a $1,500 case in terms of wages. They're going to demand $10,000 in settlement because they're going to say we have all these attorney's fees and they're going to use attorney's fees to shake you guys down at the labor commissioner. And it particularly concerns me because they have virtually no one working on these claims at the labor commissioner who's actually an attorney. And the attorneys that they do have have only worked for the government. They've never worked in private practice. So they have no idea how attorneys bill. They have no idea what an attorney actually costs. And I think there's a chance that a, a pretty good chance they're just going to rubber stamp crazy large attorney fees demands from these lawyers because they think, well, lawyers cost a lot, which you know we do. But um, there are standards to it. I mean, one of the things I've done effectively in court over the years is when I get an attorney who's unreasonable about attorney's fees in a court case, I'll make them prove their fees up in front of the judge in court. Most judges were practicing lawyers at one point or another. So you can go through an attorney's bill and essentially audit it for the court and point out what's unreasonable um, and get a pretty good outcome from a judge with that. I don't think we're going to get that from the labor commissioner. So I'm very worried about these labor commissioner claims uh, becoming a tool for extortion, especially for the smaller attorneys who are trying to jump into this, this wage and hour area of law, which has become a really, really hot area of law. I mean, I was down in, um, in Southern California not that long ago. And where it used to be all billboards of like, have you been in an accident? You know, call me and sue. Now I'm seeing all these billboards that are like overtime, meals and breaks. Have you been sexually harassed? Call us. Um, so all of this stuff is important. And on that note, we are in a time where we're seeing an increase in um, sexual harassment cases and discrimination cases. You know, what, what happens in the culture generally is what happens in the law. And we're in a time where people are particularly sensitive to those sort of things and plaintiff's attorneys see value in those kind of cases. So making sure you're doing your mandatory sexual harassment training for your employees and for your supervisors, making sure you have an effective procedure for employees to complain if they feel like they're mistreated. All that stuff is really, really, really important to make sure that we can head off these claims. I recommend to everybody, they look into what's called EPLI insurance. That's employment practices, liability insurance. It typically will not cover the wage claims that I'm talking about, but it will cover any kind of discrimination or harassment claim. So if one of those things comes up, particularly if it's an ugly claim, um, that kind of insurance can be a, a great sense of relief. I mean, I don't mind telling you guys, I own my own law firm and I have EPLI insurance, even though I'm an employment lawyer and I have an ex expertise in all this stuff. I have EPLI insurance, um, and I'm glad I have it because you just never know when a problem employee is going to create an issue for you that can cost you a bunch of money. So um, if you haven't spoken to your brokers about EPLI insurance, I would encourage you to do that. 
A lot of my clients have policies where they get to choose who the lawyer is who represents them if there's a claim. So I have a lot of clients who want me to be able to handle those cases. And again, in candor, I don't represent insurance companies. I work for employers. I work for people like you. Um, and that's where my loyalty lies. So a lot of times insurance companies would rather boot us off the case and get their own lawyer on it than answers to them. And when clients want me to handle that stuff, you need to make sure that that's in your, uh, in your policy that you get to choose your lawyer. Um, now, the other, the other side of that, and I've told this to many clients who had EPLI cases, where the insurance company picked up the defense of the case and gave it to their own lawyer, and the, the client would tell me, but Tony, we want to have you handle it. And my answer is always the same on that. that. My job is to keep you guys out of jeopardy. And if I get an insurance company to pick it up, even if that insurance company hires a terrible lawyer, your risk is the deductible. So once we get the financial risk off of you and onto an insurance company, I mean, I'd rather be there for you and I'd rather fight the case all the way through. But even if I have to step aside, if an insurance company takes the financial risk away from a dairy, I consider that a win because this whole thing is about keeping money in your guys' pockets. Uh, I've been doing this too long to think that there's any sense of like justice or winning or losing in, in sort of the old fashioned way that we think of these things. My reality is I want to save you guys money. And the minute a lawsuit gets filed, you've already lost because it's going to cost you money. The only question is how much and the goal should be to, to make it cost as little as possible, including what you have to pay me to defend you. So, um, you know, I, we, we really have to think about these things in, in practical terms and try to figure out ways to minimize and reduce risk. Um, a couple of other wrinkles that are going on at the moment is they've just expanded the California Family Rights Act, which is a mandatory leave law. So the California Family Rights Act is essentially the state law version of the Family and Medical Leave Act, which is a federal law. And originally it applied to employers who had 50 or more employees and it gave employees up to 12 weeks of unpaid time off a year um, to deal with their own serious health condition or the serious health condition of a, a family member. Um, California expanded that now to employers with five or more employees. We have a lot of small employers who've never dealt with these issues before, um, uh, who now have to deal with potentially having to manage these leaves and cover these leaves. Um, so the, the, the very short version of it is, as I said, it's 12 weeks of unpaid leave for um, the serious health condition of the employee or the employee's family member. They have to have worked for you for a year and they have to have worked 1,250 hours in that year in order to be eligible. Um, it's generally a good idea to have some paperwork process where they have to request the leave in order to get it um, and also requiring medical certification if they wanna take the leave as well. Um, Anya and I were just talking before we start, started this session. I think one of the things we're gonna be doing here in the short term is um, scheduling some sessions, both in-person and online, um, uh, both in-person and online to cover the nuts and bolts, not only of managing things like this unpaid time off under the California Family Rights Act, but managing time off for sick leave, for workers' comp leave, the various types of time off that, that people have, which now we've added COVID to that list, for example. Um, one of the most common questions that I have for from dairies and one of the most common complicated issues that we get in dairies is how to manage employee disability accommodation and time off, um, which arises a lot with workplace injuries. So it crosses over into the workers' comp system. 
uh, but also into the general legal system with laws like the CFRA or like disability discrimination laws. Um, and I, we're probably going to be doing uh, hour-long sessions on just, just that issue. Um, so keep your eyes out and stay, in, and, and stay in touch with your field reps, and we'll make sure we get something scheduled here in, in relatively short order to do that. Um, on, the, on the COVID front, the latest development that you may have seen is that I believe today they announced that the FDA is going to give full approval to the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, I have gotten quite a few questions over the last year or so, and especially in the last few months, about mandating vaccines. Uh, legally, it becomes much easier to mandate the vaccine if you want to mandate it once the a vaccine is FDA approved. My understanding is the current approval is going to apply only to Pfizer, but we may see Moderna and Johnson and Johnson follow in relatively short order. We'll just have to see how that how that plays out. Um, but um, I have a COVID specialist in my law firm. His name is Kevin Piercy. He's an attorney who works for me, who's been monitoring all the changes relative to COVID from the very beginning of this. Um, and Kevin is always available to you guys if you have questions about employee exposures or anything related um, to uh, to COVID. Um, the other big thing that we've been working on that we've, we've put in place with, uh, with Western United is we have um, a subscription legal services program and risk management program now called WERS, which is, Tanya's going to kill me if I get this wrong, but it's Western United Human Resource Services, I believe. Is that, is that correct, Tanya? You got it. Okay. Um, so I have a, a young man who worked for me who has graduated from law school and he's actually waiting for bar results to become an attorney. Um, and he's been working with me quite closely on this program, but essentially it's a subscription-based monthly fee program um, where the, the subscription amount is determined by the number of cows that you have, much like your, your, uh, your membership fees. Um, and in that program, we work on all the compliance aspects of um, keeping your dairy safe. So we start with a payroll audit. We review your check stubs. We review your practices and procedures. We're going to look at your time records. Um, we're going to we're going to talk to your employees. Caesar is bilingual. He comes from an agricultural family. His father has worked on farms his whole life. Caesar interfaces extremely well with the employees in Spanish on everything from just the introductory part of understanding how things go in the workplace, but also forming relationships with them. And even as of late, he's had a bunch of issues he's had to deal with. Um, where we have employees who are overstaying in the houses after their employment is over and, you know, helping us to negotiate with employees to get them to voluntarily leave uh, the houses. Um, so he's become very adept at all of this. He's a, a great resource for it. Um, we are doing those meal and rest period trainings that I talked about. We're doing periodic ranch visits where Caesar can just check in with the employees, see if there's any problems, Try to get ahead of any employee dissatisfaction issues um, because those things can lead to legal problems. And you know, try to get out in front of those things and give them somebody they can talk to if they don't feel comfortable talking to somebody on the dairy. We've got a toll-free phone number that Caesar gives out um, that has a voicemail at our office where they can call and leave him a message. And he checks that every day. So if some problem comes up with the employees, he can uh, he can call them back, figure out what it is, see what we can do to resolve issues. Uh, so we'll be doing sexual harassment uh, training through that. We'll be doing employee handbooks through that, implementing the various documents and paperwork that we think are needed to help 
um, protect the farm, getting those arbitration agreements signed, if there's resistance to signing those things, having Caesar again talk to those folks and see what can be done to persuade them um, to sign. And I think that the feedback that we've gotten has been pretty positive on this. I think the dairies that have been rolled so far seem very happy about how it's going. Uh, and I think it's a great way for us to try to get ahead of some of this stuff and really create this protection, this wall of protection that we need for the industry. And I'll give you an example on the meal break stuff. So one of the biggest issues on meal breaks is that the milkers tend to take their breaks whenever they feel like it or skip them altogether. Um, and for many years, I've been able to defend these cases successfully at the labor commissioner by presenting other employees as witnesses, typically the guy, the milking partner of the employee who filed the claim or people like that. And they usually tell us for the most part the same thing. Oh, well, you know, we know we can take our meal periods whenever we want to. Yeah, they tell us to take it before five hours. Uh, nobody ever tells us not to do it. It's just it's what we choose to do. We'd rather skip and finish it up and go home. Or we'd rather, you know, we'd rather take it late or, you know, whatever the case may be, usually it's voluntary, which is not a violation. But being able to show that is very difficult. So when Caesar comes out and do, does visits, he's going to spot check time cards. And if he sees people not punching out for their meal periods or he sees them taking their meal periods late, he's going to go talk to that person. Hey, Jose, I noticed that you haven't punched out for any meal periods this week. What's going on? And then Jose is going to say either, oh, well, you know, I still punch out for it because I get paid straight through anyway, or I skipped it because, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to take it. I'd rather just finish up and go home. I just get the cows down and go home. And then Caesar can follow up with some additional questions. Well, did anybody force you to skip it? Did anybody encourage you to skip it? No, no, no. That's just what I want to do. And then he can take notes of that and keep a record of that. And over time, we build like a dossier on the dairy. Where we have an incredible amount of documentation that if somebody tries to claim that they were forced to skip a meal period, we've got uh, uh, a background of, info, of of documentation to show that that stuff is not true. It's also designed to help deal with performance issues on the dairy, right? It's it's hard to fire people these days. But it's hard to find employees. So if you're having a performance issue on the dairy, it's also something that we can use Caesar for because he's kind of outside of the employer-employee relationship. Over time, as he develops a relationship of trust with the employees, if you're having a problem like the barn is slowing down, well, Caesar can go talk to the guys for you and say, hey, what's going on? The dairyman has noticed the barn is slowing down. We really need to maintain production for everybody's benefit. What's going on here? And try to you know, get to the bottom of it as a problem-solving exercise as opposed to you know, a disciplinary exercise where we're just cracking down on it. The idea ultimately is if we get enough subscribers for this program in the various regions where we have dairies, then we can cover this where Caesar goes to a particular area and even, you know, he can visit multiple dairies and check in, make sure people are taken care of, make sure there's no issues with the employees. And we can provide, we think, uh, a very high level of service uh, to the Western United members. And one of the things that's really nice about it is that if you talk to us or you talk to Caesar, it falls within the attorney-client privilege. So if you use a non-lawyer third-party HR service and you get sued, those people can be summoned to a deposition. Their emails can be subpoenaed. Their text messages can be subpoenaed. There's no legal confidentiality there. If you're communicating with a law firm, you have attorney-client privilege and no one can get access to those communications. You can literally say anything you want to me you know, short of I'm going to kill one of my workers and I have to keep it a secret. Now, obviously, if it's something severe, like you're going to commit a crime, 
that's different. But you know, you get frustrated, vent your frustration to me. So there is a confidentiality in terms of talking about problems and coming up with solutions that's very beneficial in terms of dealing with uh, um, with a lawyer. So I think with that, I'm going to open it up to some questions. Um, I think I've covered just about everything right now, you know, for the short term. I mean, there's always concerns about things like OSHA. There's always concerns um, about different areas of employment compliance. But I, I, I have to emphasize that from 20 years ago until the present, the top issue for dairies has been wage and hour compliance. And, you know, we can do better with record keeping, we can do better with training, we can do better with handbooks, we can do better with documents, we can do better with check stubs. And all of those things are things that will benefit your business and provide you with protection against what has become an increasingly predatory litigation environment. Um, in all the years I've been doing this, it's gotten so much worse in terms of, there used to be like, two or three law firms that ever sued dairies in these kind of cases. And I knew them all very well. Um, and it was a fairly predictable and small scale situation. Now I see new law firms every day. We see folks coming over the grapevine from Southern California. We see them coming over from the Bay Area uh, into dairy country. And what they do is absolutely devastating to dairy families. Um, and there are, you know, there's no bulletproof vest you put on that's going to make you totally impervious to it. But I can tell you that we can do a lot better on the risk management side that if it happens to you, you're in a much better position. It's like the difference. It's like living in hurricane country and either you want to live in a mobile home or you want to live in a brick house, you know, with a strong storm cellar. Uh, we want to build that strong storm, storm cellar for you guys. We don't want you to be in the mobile home that's going to get blown away in it. So um, let me open it up to questions now. Um, anyone have any questions about anything I've said or any other issues that have come up that, that you do have that, you know, even separate from these topics that, that you have questions about? And just a reminder that you can type your question in the chat or you can also raise your hand and we'll allow you to ask the question. Tony, this is Melissa. I've had a couple of members um, with some curiosity about the COVID vaccine situation. I know we could go on for days about this, but kind of one of the most common questions is maybe they're not necessarily interested in mandating the vaccine for employees, but they're wondering if there's a way to release themselves from any liability should an employee or their family member get sick. And then, you know, a li liability from those very strict and rigorous um, family leave provisions. So they don't necessarily want to require the vaccines, but they also don't want to be held responsible if an employee is not vaccinated and gets sick. Well, if an employee gets sick in the workplace, um, they've already created a presumption that COVID in the workplace is going to fall under workers' comp. And I know everybody likes to protect their workers' comp, but the reality is for any type of illness or injury, you're much better off having it go into workers' comp because it's fully insured and the scope of damages is way less than the typical um, than the typical personal injury scenario. I mean, there really is no there, and there's no way to exempt yourself from the family leave laws. Um, again, I think that um, the arbitration agreements are are very helpful in that regard because although they won't keep people out of workers' comp, if somebody wants to sue you in regular court for some sort of personal injury action, um, then. Uh, 
the arbitration agreement would apply to that. If somebody wants to sue you for a violation of family leave laws, the arbitration agreement would apply to that. And it, it, it devalues those cases dramatically when a plaintiff's attorney knows that they're going to end up with a private arbitrator instead of a judge and a jury in, uh, in, in conventional court. So I think those arbitration agreements are a, a, a great risk protection um, tool. But there's nothing you can like have the employee sign and say, you know, I agree not to be subject to these these mandatory leave laws. They can't waive, they can't waive those rights. Um, a couple of questions have come up in the chat. Uh, one question was whether instead of a membership, we can do a, uh, uh, a like a one-off type of audit. Which, of course, yeah, we can provide any of those services um, through our normal hourly base fees. Um, and if you want to talk to me about that stuff, you're welcome to call me at the at the office and I'll, I'll get some information from you. And, you know, I can even come up with, you know, like what, you know, an estimate of what I think the audit will cost you, because it kind of depends on the scope of what you want us to do. But we're always happy to audit payroll, look at records, look at check stubs. I mean, this is something I've done. I've done for years for dairies. Um, and in fact, much of the audit process we're, we're implementing at WERS is based upon um, a format that I came up with many years ago when I first started working in the dairy industry. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, you're not limited to doing the subscription basis. If you'd rather, if you'd rather um, do it on an hourly basis, um, give me a call and I'm happy to talk to you about that. Um, and um, the other question that came up was whether we also work in conjunction with um, third-party HR services like HR Mobile, since they do things like new hire orientation and uh, workers' comp claims. Um, and the answer to that's yes, we've worked um, in conjunction with HR Mobile many times. I mean, they're they're out, out there in quite a few places, and a lot of our clients use them. Um, so we've certainly had the opportunity where we have coordinated with them. Um, I mean, if you wanted me to audit your HR process um, and you're using HR Mobile, I mean, one of the things I'm going to ask for is the stuff that they're maintaining for you. So everything from, you know, workers' comp claim files to disciplinary practices to handbooks they've prepared for you or whatever the case may be. If you're using a third-party provider, you're responsible for that in terms of the HR aspect of it. So I would want to see that and, uh, and you know, what they're doing. And, I might you know, my recommendations would include whatever they're doing. It, you know, whether, you know, I might get back to you and say, look, what they're doing is really good here and give you that feedback. Or I might say, hey, I think that there's a way they could tweak this and do this a little bit differently. And you would get that advice as well. So, um, and we've had, you know, a number of different cases of various types where, you know, HR Mobile was involved. And, you know, I mean, I, I can think of just off the top of my head, at least a couple of different agricultural labor relations board cases, uh, as well as like wrongful termination type cases where, you know, HR Mobile helped with the disciplinary process at the dairy. So we, you know, we had to work with them on records and sometimes their people end up being witnesses in those cases too. So yeah, we have, we have no problem working with HR mobile or any other third party HR provider. You know, over the years I've worked with, you know, Fells from the Farm Bureau or, you know, there's a variety of them out there. There's some who are just independent labor consultants who do this kind of work that we've worked with. Um, but, you know, ultimately our attorney client relationship is going to be with whoever hires us, which is usually the dairy. So, you know, get, to give you an example, with the WERS uh, subscription, if you sign up for a WERS subscription, um, the first thing that we would do is ask for um, a whole list of documents from you that we would want to see. If you have a handbook, we want to see the handbook. We want to review your time records. We want to review your payroll records. There's a variety of different things that we, that we want to see from you uh, as part of the audit process. 
So if some of that stuff is being compiled or prepared or handled by HR Mobile, you know, their part of it would be part of what we audit because what they're doing is part of your employment practices. That makes sense. Well, if there's no other questions, I don't see any more in the chat. Um, I think this was a great first start, Tony. I'm, I'm going to ask our members to keep a lookout for the next scheduled uh, leave law that we'll go into detail on. Um, sounds like there's a lot of, you know, things coming up that way. So hopefully in the next few weeks, we can get that out. Thank you to all our members who pre-registered for this. We know this was a little bit of a different format. We were trying to minimize some of the background noise out there. But um, if you have any comments or questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to Darby, Melissa, or to Tony himself. And we're happy to put some of you folks directly in touch with Tony's office if that's your preference. As well, always, everyone have a great week. Oh, I'm sorry, Tony, what was that? I was going to say we can do that in whatever way you guys are comfortable with. If you're if you're more if you're more comfortable talking to your field rep and having them interface with us to ask uh, ask questions, um, Darby and Melissa call me all the time. Uh, they're not shy about calling me, and they'll be happy to do it. Um, if you guys want to uh, call me directly, you're more than welcome to call me directly. I'm uh, happy to give out my uh, my cell phone number. I'm happy to give out my office number. Um, you guys can call me anytime, any day of the week. It doesn't matter when. I'm always happy to take your calls. And um, I do a lot of free consultation for WUD members. It's part of your membership. So um, please don't hesitate to take us up on it. We want you guys to have the help that you need. Awesome. Thanks so much. Well, everyone have a wonderful day. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. The deadline for Western United Dairy's Dairy Leaders class taking place in 2021 and 2022 has been extended until the end of the month of August. The Western United Dairy Leaders program consists of regular classes that study issues affecting dairy producers in today's industry. The program is covered in six sessions that take up approximately 14 days. The program focuses on public relations, Sacramento trip that focuses on the legislature and legislative issues in the dairy industry, a session that revolves around the California pricing system, as well as a session on environmental issues. Wrapping up in the spring of 2022, dairy leaders will head to Chicago to hear a national perspective on dairy promotion, visit the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and discuss risk management. The class will also travel to Washington, D.C. to meet with federal agencies and associations, learn about the federal legislative process, and advocate for issues that matter to the California dairy industry. The program is targeted towards dairy producers and those in dairy-related enterprises who want to develop leadership roles in the California dairy industry. A dairy leader participant will be an active member of the community they work and live in who demonstrates leadership potential. Successful applicants will be from various backgrounds, experiences, and education levels. They all have one commonality. 
Everyone who is accepted will have the desire to improve the California dairy industry. Participants in the program must attend all classes in various locations, including Sacramento and Washington, D.C. It is important to note that the deadline for the program has been extended, but is still rapidly approaching. We are operating on a end of the month, August 31st deadline. If you have any questions about the program, please feel free to reach out to me at D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. Additional information and the application can be found on the Western United Dairies website. We look forward to hosting another great class of dairy leaders in the upcoming year. Did you know that you can turn your dairy manure into cash? Bennett Environmental is offering above-ground dairy digesters at no cost to you. These systems can also remove nitrates from your lagoons to help you comply with water board regulations. Our proven above-ground technology will generate income for your dairy into the foreseeable future. Because we truck the renewable natural gas off-site, your dairy can profit regardless of your location. Bennett Environmental, turning your wastewater liabilities into sustainable assets. Learn more at bennett-environmental.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Seen and Heard. We want to give a thank you to Tiffany LaMondola from Blimling, as well as Anthony Romendo from Romendo and Associates. If you have any questions about this week's podcast, please feel free to reach out to us. You can reach me at D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. You can reach Melissa at M-L-E-M-A at wudairies.com. And any questions, comments, or content requests can be sent to wud.pod at gmail.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform, and have a great week. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wuda.com. I-R-I-E-S dot com.